going to be in Acts uh, chapter 6 today, Acts chapter 6. And uh, what I want us to get uh, from this passage today is that God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. I heard some amens. I would say amen also because I, I very much am a very ordinary person, very vanilla. And I, I like understanding the fact that God not just uses, but God uh, has made a habit throughout the scriptures of using ordinary people filled with his spirit to do extraordinary things. God uses, and I don't want us to miss that, God uses ordinary people filled with his spirit to do extraordinary things. I want to talk about one of those ordinary people that God uses. And he doesn't just use them to, to do something extraordinary. He uses them really to spark a movement that would absolutely change the world. Here in Baltimore, uh, I, I view our church as being a beacon for this area. Uh, we so desperately, part of our uh, mission and vision statement is we want to reach the next one and we want to bring transformational change to our community that we're in, to your workplace, uh, to uh, your, your community, your street that you live on, uh, to any environment that you uh, spend time, transformation for the cause of Christ. But how can we? I think by taking a look at this man's life, we can see uh, lessons from an ordinary Christian and how through his life, transformational change didn't just happen in his community. It took place throughout the world. By this point in Acts chapter 6, the, the church has become a huge movement in Jerusalem. But you remember the Great Commission. The Great Commission was never to just go into Jerusalem, right? It was, it was to go into Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And the, the movement is occurring. It's, it's in Jerusalem, but they haven't quite extended outside of that area. Uh, by this time, the church in Jerusalem is 10,000 uh, people at least. Uh, that's interesting because the population of Jerusalem during this time is 40,000. Uh, 40,000 at the maximum. So at the minimum, 25% of the people in Jerusalem belong to the First Baptist Church in Jerusalem. Now they belong to the church uh, that is at Jerusalem. And today what I want us to see is I want us to look at the profile of a common Christian man and how through his willingness to be yielded to the Spirit of God in his life, God was able to bring transformational change that really brought about uh, the latter stages of the Great Commission. We've got to ask ourselves a question, though. Why is the church growing like this? Why is it growing uh, from uh, just a few apostles, a few disciples, to 10,000 people? Uh, one historian put it this way, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, for that matter, uh, any other set of ideas, religious, uh, political, economic systems ever achieve so commanding a position in such a short, important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. Most movements, they gained uh, their conquest by uh, advancing through political systems or by force, but not for century Christianity. So how? The answer, in part, is due to the profile of this common Christian named Stephen. Stephen, one of the principles that we see illustrated in his life, uh, one of the principles that he lives by, that probably makes him a fun person to be around, is he, his life just reiterates, it's not about me. 
It's not about me. I want to show you that today. That Stephen's life screams to you and I today, it's not about me. It's not about me. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Uh, it's a short way of saying uh, gossip through the grapevine uh, came up and it came, uh, people began to hear about it, the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. You need to understand that this is a dangerous problem. Uh, there, there's two specific groups of people that are brought about here. We have the Grecians with the complaint murmurings about another specific group of people, the Hebrews. Not only is it a conflict with the widows, it is a conflict, it's a racial conflict. Um, their accusation is that the Hebrew widows are being taken care of, but the Grecian widows are not. There's an assumed accusation here. This is a powder keg of a situation. It's more than just somebody's not being provided for. There's a racial accusation. You're prioritizing this group over one because of their cultural ethnicity. And when the Grecians there are basically Hellenized Hebrews. They are uh, those Jews that have adapted uh, um, uh, Grecian or Roman customs and practices in their culture. There are two problems, though, with this complaint one, they assign motives. They didn't bother asking uh, why this happened or anything. They just assumed that it was a, a racial problem. Uh, the Grecians complained uh, against the Hebrews, in other words. They assumed the Hebrews were leaving them out for racial and cultural reasons. The second is that they never brought this to the apostles themselves. They never brought it to somebody who could actually do something about the problem. And you know what? Uh, this really is Satan's third uh, attack on the church during this time. Satan has uh, effectively uh, already tried to attack the church through government. Uh, the next attack he did was when Ananias and Sapphira through their hypocrisy. Now he's attacking them uh, through a backbiting and distrust. And I tell you this, nothing is used by Satan more effectively than distrust and resentment in the church among God's people. A spirit... Uh, one preacher put it this way, a spirit of grumbling and complaining kills more churches than persecution. Our pastoral staff has really been uh, really going through, and Pastor Tool has been really trying to pour into us uh, as a staff to uh, help uh, ease any, any sort of conflict that we may have as a staff, and he has these two rules that we've really been going through, and they correspond with this passage, and I'm going to give them to you for free, okay? Don't even, no, no charge right here. It's not included in the message. The first is always give people the benefit of the doubt about their motives when you can. Uh, the, the Grecians here, they assumed the Hebrews were doing this out of these particular reasons. And then secondly, when you have a problem, always go straight to the source. Can I tell you how many conflicts in our lives would be settled uh, by simply abiding by those two rules in life? And so uh, the, the council, the church leadership, how did they respond? Did they respond defensively? Well, you, you don't even know. They, they, they respond, that's a baseless accusation. Oh no, you didn't, how dare you? Look at verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is no reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
Uh, Wherefore, brethren, uh, look ye among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we we may appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and the same please the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and then a list of names that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Uh, But the interesting thing about those names is they are, in fact, Grecian. And so they, they, they saw and identified the problem, and they appointed the majority of those that they appointed that in this list were, in fact, Grecians for uh, the Grecian widows. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, when you see that passage initially, the temptation is to look at uh, the apostles there and to think that they somehow saw a service to the widows as being beneath them. And so they're like, we, we can't do this, we don't have time to do this, we're, uh, this is beneath us. No, but the apostles were doing this up until that point. They were taking care of that, but it became abundantly clear uh, that they weren't able to do both the ministry of the word and prayer and um, the care for the widows. And so uh, what we see, the fact that they had to call on a team was something that the widows largely implies that the apostles were already doing this. Uh, they already thought of themselves as servants, and, but now they realized it was too heavy and would consume their time, and the greatest act of service that they could provide was teaching the word accurately and seeking God in prayer on behalf of the church. They didn't graduate out of service. Verse 7, we're uh, really told that the result of that, um, something I find interesting is that the priests, uh, many of the priests, it points out them specifically that they came uh, to saving faith in, the, in Christ, which is ironic because they were the ones that had been antagonistic towards the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, they helped lead his crucifixion, uh, but now their hearts are changed, and we've got to ask ourselves, How? How? I'd submit to you that the thing that changed was the faithful service of God's people to the poor and needy, to the widows in their, commu- in their community. And look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Uh, evidently, leading in a lot of these conversions was Stephen. And he's a guy that's singled out here. And all of these conversions, they really cause an uproar. And it really causes uh, the chief priest to bring him uh, and, uh, before a council. And Stephen is going to preach in Acts 7 uh, the longest recorded sermon uh, in the book of Acts. This man, Stephen, is two, he has really his two major points. Uh, some of you are wishing, Ryan, I wish you had two major points. Uh, Israel, the first point is, Israel, you have always resisted the, God's messenger. It didn't matter who it was, the prophets, you killed them, you persecuted them. Jesus Christ... You nailed him to a cross. The second one is the law that you hold to so closely can't actually save you. First of all, you don't keep it. Uh, Second of all, uh, it was never meant to save you. It cannot give you a new heart, which you really need. And in verse seven, in verse or in chapter seven, in verse fifty-one. Uh, he reaches the end of his sermon, and it's reaching the point of the invitation, right? You would think a nice, encouraging message right here. Verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. 
as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have slain them which showed uh, before the coming of the just one, of whom uh, ye have been now betrayers and murderers, who have received the law uh, by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. After that, they sang a chorus of Just As I Am, and uh, everyone came forward. They, they did, what we see here is really five lessons from the life of Stephen. Uh, these lessons are from an ordinary Christians, are really things that focuses, uh, that Stephen uh, really applied to his life. And the first of this that we see from Stephen's life is that the core of the Christian commitment is service. The core of the Christian commitment is service. Stephen is introduced to us as a servant. That is his office. He serves. He waits tables for widows. He obviously, throughout this passage that we read, is a capable leader. But when the need became apparent within the church, Stephen didn't say, man, I need to really find a position that's more in line with my gifts and abilities. No, he saw a need, and he filled that need. He said, it's not about me and how I can serve, it's about how I can serve the body of Christ. I'll gladly do it. And you notice his service? He's singled out here in his service what it does. You remember that powder keg of a racial issue? Uh, it, it brought unity, right? Serving others, it brings unity. And it brought the conversion of some of the chief antagonists. And ultimately, it's going to bring the church's chief per persecutor, Saul, into saving faith. Uh, a famous apologist, Francis Schaeffer, said this, and he's written books, volumes on apologetics, and he wrote this at the conclusion of one of his books. He says, the love of the church is the church's most effective apologetic. I know pastors hard, and it's that our church, uh, yes, would be a church that preaches the truth from the pulpit uh, and proclaim the truth of God's word, but that also we would be a loving church that seeks to serve our community. And that was Stephen. And we see it's, it's this loving service that brings a genuine change uh, in, in people within the community, these, these priests that once persecuted uh, Christ. And we see that this unity within the church, this love for service in the church, it begins to overflow into the streets, into other people. In fact, the Roman emperor Julian, one of the fiercest persecutors of the early Christians, whom the early church uh, they, they referred to him in derogatory ways. Said, uh, Emperor Julian said this, these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. Another historian said, most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the communities. Christians spent more, time in the street, or more money in the streets than the followers of religion spent in their temples. This was an early depiction of the early church. This was an early depiction of Stephen's sacrifice, of the way Stephen served others. The second thing that this leads me to is uh, the second lesson that we see from Stephen's life is nothing is more important than the Word of God. Nothing is more important than the Word of God. Uh, the apostles, they, they had filled up their schedules too much and they had to begin to pick and choose what things they needed to take care of. And they, they sent out an all call for anybody who is faithful and just and uh, somebody to fill this office to help them in these areas. And Stephen, uh, 
Stephen was able to fill that call. In chapter 7, Stephen is going to preach the longest recorded sermon in Acts. Where do you think Stephen got his knowledge to preach such a sermon? Stephen wasn't a pastor. You think about that, if, if you got brought before a council of your peers and friends, are you going to break out into a, a chapter 7 sermon like Stephen? But Stephen had such a knowledge of the Scripture, an average church member, a faithful church member, is preaching this incredible sermon. Where did he get the knowledge from it, from hearing the apostles teach it? You know, those same apostles that were trying to find the time to do both this and that, Stephen saw such a need for them to teach and preach the Word of God that he was willing to take this off his plate because he prioritized the Word of God in his life. And I love Rosedale. One of the reasons why we came here is the verse by verse, chapter by chapter, preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And Pastor Tool prioritizes teaching the Word of God. And we have that responsibility as a church. But sometimes we forget uh, the responsibility of those sitting in the pews, of those sitting in the chairs. Sorry, I'm sorry my terminology. Of those sitting in the chairs. The responsibility to learn the Scripture. See, the responsibility work, works both ways. The apostles to teach, uh, the, the pastors to preach, but then uh, the mem or the, those in the church to learn the Word of God. Can I ask you, have you devoted yourself to the Word? Would you be ready to preach the kind of sermon that uh, Stephen preaches in these chapters to those that have questions about the Word of God? Something I, f I love about this church is the incredible diversity, the reach that Rosedale has the areas of society that you will, the people that you will have conversations with that I will never have conversations with. But in those moments, do you feel like you would be able to provide answers to those that have questions, like Stephen was? Like Stephen, you are going to be called to uh, give answers in places where uh, we as pastoral staff are not going to be present. And have you been faithful to learning and gleaning from the Word of God. One pastor said it this way, he can't fire bullets that you haven't stocked in your arsenal, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Uh, those things that we put into memory, those, those verses that we learn, the third lesson that we see from Stephen's life, and probably the most profound, is that God does his greatest work through ordinary people. God does his greatest work through ordinary people. People. Stephen preaches the longest sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts, and the most powerful effect was the greatest evangelist that has ever walked the face of this earth was saved, the conversion of Saul. Really pointing back to this moment in Stephen's, or it was with Stephen's martyrdom. Why? What was the Holy Spirit trying to show us through this? He's trying to show us this, that ordinary people filled with the Spirit can do extraordinary things. Ordinary people filled with, the, with God's Spirit can do extraordinary things. One of the most profound scriptures that really confused me for the longest time was in John 16 and verse 7 when Jesus tells his disciples that it would be better for him to leave them so that the Comforter can come, so that God's Spirit can come. What God is saying in that, what Jesus is saying in that passage is that my power in you is greater than my presence beside you. My power in you is greater, more powerful than my presence beside you. And to me, that gives me such great hope. 
an encouragement to know that God wants to use an ordinary individual like me to accomplish his work in Baltimore. The fourth truth. The Christian message is one of grace and truth. The Christian message is one of grace and truth. I'm not going to review the contents of Stephen's message. I'd encourage you sometime to go through and read all of the contents of it, but I can get what I can tell you about it. It is filled with grace and truth. Primarily, it's, it's filled with scathing truth, right? He calls them stiff-necked, right? He, calls them, he says they have uncircumcised hearts. He's getting at the truth of the matter. But if you look towards the end, right, of this passage, as they are stoning him, and they stone Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Look at verse 60. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not his, this sin on their charge, to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. The truth of God's judgment upon sin, but then the forgiveness that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, the Christian message is one of grace and truth. The last lesson that we see really from the life of Stephen is that sometimes God's will for us is suffering. This is probably the most difficult lesson that's in this passage, but it's probably the most obvious, right? Sometimes God's will for us is suffering. Stephen did everything right. Stephen did everything right and he ended up dead. What happened? Why, why didn't God bless him? Right? Why didn't God bless and, and reward him and grow his ministry and multiply his days? Well, I don't know the answer to this, I will say uh, we see a result in verse 58 of this moment. And cast him out of the city, speaking of Stephen, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Saul is going to experience, have the beginning experience of something in his life that would ultimately lead to his conversion. And it is through the suffering, the death of Stephen. Saul, here seeing a man proclaim the truth of God's word, being stoned, and as he's being stoned, forgiving the very people that called him a heretic that persecuted him, that, that ultimately led to his death. Uh, one writer put it this way, Saul was watching as every stone smashed into Stephen's face, as his body was mangled into a bloody heap. Saul heard Stephen's pleas with God to forgive his persecutors, and he saw the glory of God reflected on Stephen's face, and something happened in Saul's heart that he never got over. He says this, Stephen's blood going into the ground was the seed of, of the Apostle Paul's faith. And when you think that Steve's a most, uh, Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God was the way he suffered, was the way his martyrdom. Paul was not converted by seeing Stephen delivered. He was converted by seeing Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, testify to Jesus' glory in the midst of his pain. And something that, I, I'm only 32, right? I, and it's something that I've, I've learned in my short period of time is that the sermon of my life is so much louder in times of suffering than it is in times of blessing. 
The sermon that you communicate to an unsaved world is so much louder in how you handle the suffering of life than how you could ever handle those times of blessing. And Stephen grasped onto that truth and it, it had a lasting impact in the kingdom of God. From the start to finish, Stephen's life screams to us, it's not about me. And he invites us to direct our attention to the one who is worthy of our affection. My life isn't about self-actualization or getting the respect I deserve. It's about serving others, waiting tables for widows, if that's what needs to be done. It's not about obtaining blessing and walking in prosperity, uh, but about directing people's attention to Jesus. What is it all about for you? i got to be honest with you, there are times in my life where I get so into the routines of life that I forget what Christianity, what this life is all about. And I'm living for something so much more than the things of this earth. All the religious leaders were calling Stephen a heretic. And something that we, are, we see in, this, in Stephen's life that really mirrors someone that we should know what did Stephen, how was Stephen able to get this kind of courage? How was Stephen able to have this kind of selflessness in a dire situation? Look at verse 55. And he, speaking of Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. And what did he see? And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. He saw Jesus stretching out those nail-pierced hands. He saw Jesus, the, uh, the one who had uh, died for him, the Lord of the universe that had given up his life for Stephen. He had washed the feet of sinners, Stephen's feet, and of course Stephen was serving other people with his life. Then Stephen, he prayed Father, he prayed to, to forgive those people that were persecuting him. That prayer mirrors somebody else's prayer that you, you know in the Bible. Jesus. Chapters 6 and 7, what they portray for us is that Stephen is personifying Jesus. Stephen is living like Jesus. Stephen is becoming to others what Jesus had become to him. Uh, Timothy Keller says this about this passage. He says, those who believe the gospel and behold the gospel, become like the gospel. Then we see included an odd little detail that uh, Jesus is standing, right? And many, many pastors have pointed out that G typically when you see Jesus uh, up in the heavens, that typically he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's standing at the right hand of the Father. It's as if Jesus is saying, uh, one pastor pointed out, he's mine. They called him a heretic and a fool, but Father, I say he's mine. Earth was condemning him, but heaven was commending him. Earth was rejecting him, but heaven was receiving him. Are you suffering today? Or do you find yourself in a, diff in a difficult spot where you're finding it hard to trust in Jesus? Can I encourage you, like Stephen, to see Jesus today? Uh, maybe not in a heavenly vision, but in his word, in prayer. In those moments of suffering, in those moments 
uh, of pain where I don't really know what to do. God, I, I mentioned it today in my ordination, that God ultimately directs my soul to the Psalms. Because in it I find a person, in the person of David, who struggles with depression, who struggles with anxiety, who struggled with many real issues in life, but ultimately talks himself around and ultimately finds his hope in the person of Jesus, in God. The degree to which you understand Jesus' love and victory is the degree to which you will be able to endure suffering well. I want to end with really letting you know what Stephen's name means. Many of you probably know the name Stephen in Greek is crown. Uh, the Grecians would give crowns to those people who overcame, right? Who overcame the obstacles, who overcame the, the physical exertion required of them uh, to excel in the game or whatever they were doing. Don't miss that Stephen's overcoming what we typically would call a blessing, but dying faithful to Jesus with his eyes fixed upon the risen Christ. God wants to use ordinary people in Baltimore, filled with his spirit, to do extraordinary things in our community. But what we learn from the lessons of this man, this ordinary man who God used in a mighty way to spark a movement in the community that he was in, I pray that he will.